From the Great Jarmuthan District Talking Newspaper Association, hello and welcome to Grapevine. This is Volume 41, Number 18, for week ending Friday the 7th of May 2021. This week's news includes our local Covid update. After being closed for 13 years, the dear old seafront empire looks to reopen. Sadly, the bloaters are out of the cup and anyone fancy ice cream with a beer chaser? I'm Graham, your presenter, and joining me this week is Desney, your newsreader, who, as usual, also takes a look at things telly. News first, however, so it's over to Desney. Hello everyone, this is Desney here, welcoming you to the first issue of the month of May. COVID infections in Great Yarmouth at lowest level in eight months. The rate of coronavirus infections in Great Yarmouth has dropped to its lowest level in more than eight months. The latest figures from Public Health England show that for the seven days leading up to April the 30th, the rate was six cases per 100,000 people, the lowest since August the 22nd last year. The number is down from 26.2 cases per 100,000 people for the previous week, a drop of 77%. None of the borough's neighbourhoods had more than three cases. Broadland is the only other local authority in Norfolk with no areas above three cases. Across the county, the rate of infection stands at 17.6, showing no change from the previous seven days, while in England it is 22.6, a decrease of 9%. The news comes as people are being asked to get tested for the virus twice a week, with public health bosses saying it is key to keeping a lid on the pandemic. 50,000 more COVID jabs given out, but pace slows in region. Almost 50,000 more coronavirus vaccines have been administered in Norfolk and Waveney, according to the latest figures. Fresh data published by NHS England on Thursday shows 49,056 people received injections in the seven days up to May the 2nd. That is, however, a 26% reduction on last week when 66,257 jabs were given out. Another 39,180 patients attended appointments for second doses during the latest period bringing the total number of follow-up vaccines administered to 299,624. This means that more than a third of the area's overall adult population have been fully vaccinated, 35.2%. 
and all 43 health systems across the nation, only Somerset has a better vaccination rate when it comes to both doses, and that's 37.2%. In terms of first doses, 9,876 people went for jabs between April the 26th and May the 2nd, as the rollout progresses through younger, less vulnerable age groups. From last week, everyone over the age of 40 was invited to book an appointment via the national booking system. In Norfolk and Waveney, 99,069 patients under the age of 45 have received a single dose, although many are in the higher priority groups. The total number of patients in our area to have received an initial vaccine has now reached 595,101, which is 69.9% of the over-16 population. Norfolk and Waveney and Care Partnership's first dose vaccine vaccination rate, therefore, remains the fifth best in the country with Dorset topping the pile on 72.1%. In terms of more specific neighbourhoods, just 15 across the whole nation have seen more than 50% of their population given both jabs. But the list includes Heacham and Snettisham in West Norfolk, where 52% of people have received both doses. Moreover, North Norfolk, makes the top 10 local authorities when it comes to first dose percentage of the residents, with 71.9%. Swimming champion turns to cycling to raise funds for Cancer Centre. An Olympic swimmer from Great Yarmouth has turned to cycling to raise money for a new Cancer Support Centre. Jessica Jane Applegate, 24, who lives in Borough Castle, took up the new sport during the coronavirus lockdowns and is urging cyclists to sign up to the Norwich 100, which is taking place on June the 6th. This year, funds raised by Big C will go towards the charity's new Cancer Support and Information Centre in the heart of Norwich. Miss Applegate said, I am a local girl and I love supporting local causes. Big C is a great charity doing so much to help those in our community with cancer and their families. The new centre in Norwich will be a fantastic facility that will provide support for many. Depending on my training commitments, I'm hoping to ride the Norwich 100 on their behalf and I would encourage any keen cyclists to do the same and raise much-needed funds for the charity. I am new to cycling. It will actually be my first cycling event. I have discovered that Norfolk has a wonderful cycling community. I didn't know it could be so much fun. What I like about the Norwich 100 is that it is a fun challenge and you don't have to push yourself too hard if you don't want to. It's a lovely scenic route too. 
The Norwich 100 starts from Norwich City Hall, taking riders on a 100-mile journey through the countryside, passing landmarks such as Horsey Mill and Blickling Hall. There is also a 60-mile option of more relaxing a 30-mile route available. The finish is located at Norwich Cathedral, where there will be music, a beer tent and food. All cyclists will receive a medal at the finish. The cycle ride is fully COVID compliant and supported with clearly signed routes, marshals, medical cover, cycle mechanics and pickup vehicles. Tom Holmes, events and engagement manager at Big C, said, The Norwich 100 is one of our first in-person events taking place since COVID restrictions have started to lift and we couldn't be more excited. A big thank you to Jessica Jane, our wonderful sponsors and everyone else who is supporting Big C. We are extremely grateful to anyone who signs up and decides to fundraise for our charity and those affected by cancer locally. Buy a B&B as nine for sale in a boom year for budget hotels. Nine seaside guest houses in Norfolk are currently for sale and a tourist boss says there is no better time to buy one. Peter Williamson, Vice Chairman of the Norfolk and Suffolk Tourist Attractions Association, NSTA, said the guest house market is huge. It's a boom year for them and all accommodation from glamping, camping, traditional guest houses to deluxe ones, budget to boutique hotels. And he said they offered a much more personal service with owners offering meals and being on hand to chat to guests rather than the more impersonal service of staying in a budget hotel chain like a Premier Inn or a Travelodge. There will always be a high number of guest houses for sale, with owners retiring. What they offer, from home-cooked food, full English breakfasts, the attention to detail is one-to-one -one, and you never get anything better than that. Despite being on the market, the guest houses are reopening from May the 17th and owners are taking bookings. David and Anya Hallas, who run the Richmond, a 15-bedroom guest house in Westgate, Hunstanton, are selling it for 825000 However, it will be reopening as planned. You have to make sure the prices are right and what you put on someone's plate is right, said Mrs Hallas who's owned the guest house for 35 years. With sea views, the building is made of carstone, which Hun Stanton is renowned for, given its nickname gingerbread because of its sandy colour and texture. A traditional B&B is more friendly than a Premier Inn. In some chain budget hotels, you can't always get breakfast or an evening meal. You have to keep on top of things. You used to be able to buy furniture that would last a lifetime, but now you can't. We decided to pick an older clientele and some just want to have a chat. There are a lot of lovely people out there. Guest houses offer that personal touch. Another guest house owner, also selling to buy a smaller property, 
who did not want to be named, said, People really love the breakfasts, which are hot and freshly prepared. The afternoon tea on arrival, so guest houses are not dead and over with. They're hidden jewels, but sometimes priced out by Airbnb and have higher business costs. And then there's been a problem of Covid on top of all that. Guest houses priced from 220,000 to 1.395 million are currently for sale in Norfolk. These include the 18-bedroom Clarence in Princess Road, Great Yarmouth, for sale for £350,000. All bedrooms have en-suites and the property comes with owner's accommodation and car parking. Also in Great Yarmouth is the Blenheim in Apsley Road, a Victorian building with 12 bedrooms situated close to the seafront and for sale for £250,000. The Hamilton North Drive Great Yarmouth is for sale for 600,000 to 650,000 with 24 bedrooms all with en-suites and owner's accommodation. Richmond House Westgate Hunstanton is for sale for 825,000 pounds with 9 bedrooms and 4 apartments. New open top bus service to cruise the coast this summer. Bus passengers will enjoy unobstructed views and a taste of fresh air this summer with the launch of an open top service on the east coast. Three open toppers will operate the new Clipper Cabriolet line between Hemsby and Great Yarmouth, launching on May the 16th. The service, running daily up to every 20 minutes, will take passengers from Hemsby to Scrapby and California, then Caister and Seashore Holiday Park, before arriving in Great Yarmouth and terminating at the Pleasure Beach. Chris Speed, Head of Operations at First Eastern Counties, said, With both Great Yarmouth Town and other local resorts along the coast booking up with holidaymakers, the service is expected to be a real attraction and a fantastic fun addition to the holiday experience for many. For our local communities, it will also provide a fun experience and convenient link to other locations along the coast where many people visit throughout the summer season. Bloaters bow out of Senior Cup after a strong run. Great Yarmouth Town's Cup run came to an end on Wednesday night as they were beaten in the quarter-finals. The Bloaters had made great progress in the Norfolk Senior Cup, but lost out against Wroxham FC. The Wroxham yachtsmen showed their early intent with a shot at goal in the first minute, but the visitors broke quickly and some good play between Connor Delaney and Tyler Halliday saw the young fullback power forwards, but his cross drifted out for a goal kick. The home side were slick in their passing, and the movement of the forward players was causing problems, but the young bloaters stuck to their task and broke swiftly when they did get possession. The home side had to wait until the 23rd minute, when the bloaters' defence was finally breached, 
with Curtis latching onto a delicate through ball and finishing past Fan Nichols to give the hosts a much-deserved lead. Despite a tough start to the game, the bloaters were working hard and competing against a very talented home side. Delaney on the right wing was proving a handful for the hosts and he earned his side a free kick that Smith headed goalwards and Baker's shot was blocked in front of goal as the resilient visitors mounted a mini resurgence. With the home side having a slender single goal advantage, it was the bloaters who were first to show in the second half as Baker, playing with an injury, headed narrowly over the bar from a Delaney free kick. The bloaters were enjoying their best spell in the game and a good chance came when Smith burst through the home defence. His shot across goal flashed agonisingly past Sutton's upright. Delaney was then sent tumbling as it appeared the home side were beginning to lose some of their composure as the visitors went hunting for an equaliser. The yachtsmen doubled their lead as Taylor scored from close range in the 70th minute. It looked like the game was up as Grant Holt entered the play to add his experience to see the game out for the yachtsmen. The final 20 minutes belonged to the home side as they reasserted their authority on the game and it was no surprise when substitute Cooper fired in a low drive past Nichols. On the 90-minute mark, Ryan Miles sprinted clear of a tired bloater's defence to make it 4-0 to the hosts, a spirited performance by a very young bloater's side. Full-time, Wroxham 4, Great Yarmouth 0.
the BBC theme for Grandstand in its entirety. Still to come, Desney takes a look at the slightly controversial ending of a certain Sunday night serial. But firstly, let's have the second part of the local news. Goodbye number 12. Send off to dedicated 4x4 response member. A poignant clifftop guard of honour was formed as part of tributes to a founding member of the region's 4x4 response team. Christopher Jones from Galston was the 12th person to join the Norfolk and Suffolk 4x4 response team when it started in 1999. The charity was founded by Great Yarmouth resident Ralph Hardwick and his brother and has grown into a UK-wide service of 32 teams. Before the funeral service at Great Yarmouth Crematorium on Wednesday, members from the 4x4 team Norfolk Lowland Rescue and the Northamptonshire branch of the charity formed a guard of honour along the clifftop. 73-year-old Christopher Jones died on April the 19th after being diagnosed with a brain tumour and has been remembered by his family as their little rock. Mr Jones's daughter, Helen Hodgins, said it was the perfect send-off for her Land Rover-loving dad. She said, He was number 12. When they started up, they were a smallish group and it has grown over the years. He still paid his membership and would try to go to the AGM if he could. He did enjoy it. He always loved Land Rovers and had many over the years. He said it was nice to be able to do something with it other than drive it on the roads. Mr Jones, known as Chris or CJ, attended school in the town and went on to work as a tradesman for all his life, working on projects until last June. Mrs Hodgins said he talked to everybody and anybody. He was honest and he would tell it as it was. People have said, I knew your dad and respected him. All the traders loved him. He was fun, loving, had an amazing sense of humour and was kind. Both my aunt and I called him our little rock as he has been there for both of us. We would go to see him just to have a chat and he would sort the problem out. The keen fisherman, who picked up carpentry skills from his father, renovated his boat, the Armand Queen, which he would take out to fish along the broads. Seaside Cafe gets permission to sell alcohol. A seaside cafe, described by its owners as more than just an ice cream parlour, has been given permission to sell alcohol. The decision made by the Licensing Subcommittee of Great Yarmouth Borough Council on Tuesday, May the 4th, will allow Buddies, a premises at the jetty on Marine Parade, to sell alcohol to its customers between 9am and 10pm every day. Drinks will be available both on and off the premises, but the licence is primarily to enhance the dining experience, manager Ashley Mitchell said in the application. Super strength beers or ciders with an alcohol by volume level of 6% or more will not be available. One person has raised concerns over a possible change to the family-friendly atmosphere, especially on summer firework nights. 
In response, the cafe's owner said they were confident that customers who wanted to drink excessively would be more likely to go to a pub. Man dies after being found unresponsive in car at retail park. A man has died after being found unresponsive in a car at a retail park in Great Yarmouth. Police were called to the Gapton Hall retail park shortly after 12.30pm on Monday, May the 3rd, after a man had been found unresponsive inside a car. The man, aged in his 70s, was taken to hospital but sadly pronounced dead a short time after arriving. An East of England ambulance service spokesperson said an ambulance and rapid response vehicle attended a medical emergency at the Gapton Hall retail park just after 12.30pm. An adult male was transported to the James Paget Hospital for treatment. People at the scene reported a large emergency services presence, describing it as a huge incident and advised others to avoid the area. One woman said she saw a casualty receiving CPR in the car park opposite Marks and Spencer. Seafront Empire reopening as music and street food venue. One of Great Yarmouth's architectural gems is set to enjoy a new lease of life when it reopens in the summer. The Empire has been closed since 2008 but is set to regain its place as one of the town's top entertainment venues. Under plans being brought forward by its owners, the 120-year-old former cinema will be a hub for street food bars, artisan coffee and live music, hoping to ride a staycation surge. Company director Ben Jay said... There won't be anything quite like this anywhere else in the country where a historic entertainment venue can be enjoyed in such a new and exciting way. This is such an exciting addition to the already vibrant Great Yarmouth Seafront and offers something very different from other brilliant restaurants and bars. Mr J said, unlike the multi-bar Bourbon Street and later Zen nightclub, it would be more likely to be a day or evening attraction with a more relaxed vibe. We have been wanting to open it for quite a long time, he said. Our focus has always been on the Hippodrome, but lockdown has given us more time to look at other projects. We feel there is a gap in the market and a chance to help some smaller operators that have been doing some great things during lockdown. We're looking forward to it, but are very apprehensive. We're putting a lot on the line. Owner Peter Jay said he was thrilled the prominent building was reopening. He said, we've been working really hard on getting this amazing venue open again and feel the time is finally right. It's looking absolutely incredible inside and we will be giving people a chance to enjoy the unreal majesty of this theatre's interior like never before. Mr J said he was especially keen to provide a platform for new musical talent. Jack J said he was excited about being at the hub of the Norfolk food industry. 
I've been passionate about the amazing food and drink scene we've grown right here in Norfolk, and this is a chance to showcase it in the most amazing of spaces, he said. It's going to be a really relaxed food environment, with the vendors each having a unique space to create food, all centred around a stage for live music and entertainment. The Jay family have been working with food consultant Alex Hutton. Alex is originally from Galston and has just returned to the area after working in London. Alex said, I think people are going to absolutely love the concept we are putting together. We have already got some top draw food vendors interested in joining us and are excited to add more in the coming weeks. It's a dream come true to work on bringing this sort of concept to a truly iconic building that I grew up with. Visitors are being promised a unique experience with seating areas themed with memorabilia from Great Yarmouth's entertainment history. The Empire is listed as being one of the top ten seaside people's palaces in Great Britain. Built in 1911 as a cinema, it has also been a bingo hall and nightclub Bourbon Street and Zen. It has been owned by the Jay family since 1947. The Empire was one of Yarmouth's principal cinemas in the area when picture-going was a weekly habit for many. Its terracotta frontage with twin pairs of imitation, tall, classical pillars made it an attractive addition to the seafront scene. It was the second purpose-built cinema to open in the town. The Historic England listing makes particular reference to the decorative ceiling and giant columns that grandly flank the entrance and curved ticket booths. It was officially listed as a Grade 2 building of special interest in 1991. People are being encouraged to follow the Empire's various social media pages on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook via at the Empire GY. An opening date has yet to be set. New plea to get into habit of twice weekly COVID tests. A fresh appeal has been made to people in Norfolk to get tested for COVID-19 twice a week with public health bosses saying it is key to keeping the lid on coronavirus. More than 150,000 free rapid tests have been carried out via community testing and business testing in Norfolk. But public health chiefs want to see more people getting tested for coronavirus twice weekly. While refusing to say whether she was disappointed in the take-up of twice-weekly tests so far, Diane Steiner, Deputy Public Health Director for Norfolk, said it would be beneficial if everyone in the county got into the habit of getting tested. She said, we have a number of tools in our toolbox to keep ourselves and our family, friends and colleagues safe and getting regular testing is one of these tools. It's really important because one in three people who have COVID-19 have no symptoms. By doing the testing regularly, we can find cases in the community which we would otherwise not find. 
I'd encourage everybody to get into the habit of being tested twice a week. Regular testing will be key to keeping cases in Norfolk as low as possible. Mrs Steiner said more than 150,000 tests have been carried out via workplace testing at about 250 Norfolk businesses and at community testing sites. Testing kits can also be collected from pharmacies and libraries, ordered online via the County Council's website or obtained by calling 119. But amid concerns over the accuracy of the lateral flow tests, Mrs Steiner stressed a negative result should not be used as a green light to abandon other measures such as wearing masks, social distancing and hand washing. She said it's important that people register their results and if somebody tests positive then they should self-isolate and book a PCR test via www.gov.uk forward slash get hyphen coronavirus hyphen test to confirm the result and they should not be used for people who have symptoms. Those people should book a PCR test. The government says every 1,000 lateral flow tests carried out, there was less than one false positive result. But a University of East Anglia study into mass testing in Liverpool found they failed to detect 60% of all positive cases. Oh dear, a bit of a difference there. Let's have a look at a bit of television. What are we going to do on a Sunday night now that Line of Duty Series 6 has come to an end? Well, first of all, here's what feature writer Emma Lee thinks about it. Line of Duty definitely, definitely spelt in the very special baddies way, kept us on the edge of our seats. But that ending and breathe. After seven Sunday evenings spent on the edge of our sofas, the identity of Line of Duty's final H has finally been revealed. Almost 13 million of us tuned in to discover that the fourth man, the remaining corrupt police officer, had been right there under our and AC-12's noses all along right back since series one. Hiding in plain sight, it was none other than Mother of God DSU Ian Buckles in cahoots with the organised crime group OCG. Bumbling Buckles. For weeks, the internet has been awash with all manner of wild theories. But it turns out that us armchair sleuths including Jenny from Gogglebox, who was literally taking notes, had been overthinking it. Buckles had golf clubs in his office, but surely it wouldn't be that obvious he was a caddy, would it? And what was it that rumbled him? His spelling and some fantastic detective work from HC12's newest recruit, DC Chloe Bishop. To quote our hero, Superintendent Ted Hastings, like the battle, 
this sixth series of Jed Mercurio's labyrinthine police procedural had really been sucking diesel. But it's definitely fair to say that a sizeable proportion of people with a Twitter account felt Sunday night's season finale, which could be the last ever episode, ran out of fuel. To recap, the series started with Hastings' team looking into this series' antagonist, D.I. Joanne Davidson, the brilliant Kelly MacDonald, and the failure of Operation Lighthouse to identify the killer of journalist Gail Vella, plus AC12 trio Ted, Steve Arnott and Kate Fleming were battling their own demons. From there, Mercurio served up Line of Duty's signature adrenaline fueled mix of shock deaths, twists, ill-advised convoys, tense interviews, Jed Herrings, battling abbreviations new for this series, the CHIS, or Covert Human Information Source, and proper boo-hiss villains in the shape of Ryan Pilkington and Patricia Carmichael. This latest series has been one of those tele-events which brings everyone together, something that has become increasingly rare since the advent of streaming services such as Netflix, which encourage viewers to binge whole series in a couple of greedy sittings. But at 9pm on a Sunday for the last seven weeks, there's been an appointment to view. And because it was rationed on iPlayer rather than the whole series dropping at once, we've been watching in sync. Those shared experiences have felt more precious than ever, having spent more than a year in some form of lockdown and unable to connect with others in the ways that we usually would. Surely the reward of seven weeks of dedicated viewing would be a big shock reveal about H's identity and a satisfyingly nail-biting interview showdown in the famous glass box. Maybe there'd be an urgent exit required and a getaway. Instead, we got a grumpy brummy bloke in a prison-issue tracksuit. For many, the last episode felt underwhelming. Ted spoke for many of us when he lamented, All the time we were here, thinking we were chasing some criminal mastermind. But no, your corruption was mistaken for incompetence. You're right, I'm a blundering fool. I'm only the one who's made total mugs out of you lot, Buckles shouted back. There was some closure, though. Gail Vella's murder was solved, and the investigation into the OCG-related murder of Lawrence Christopher, which Vella was looking into, originally botched by a team which included Buckles, was reopened with a suspect in the frame. Joanne Davidson went into witness protection and got new life in what looked like a Bowden catalogue, and it was genuinely heartwarming that Terry Boyle, taken advantage of by the OCG right from Series 1, finally got a safe and happy home. My overwhelming emotion was actually relief. The tagline for this series was Lies Cost Lives and all series long I've been nervous that one of Ted, Kate or Steve might not make it to the end because, 
as we know by now, with Jed Mercurio, anything is possible. But there were still a couple of big questions remaining. Firstly, was that really it? There's been no word yet about Series 7. The suspect's mugshots have all been taken down from AC12's pinboard and put away in a box. Ted is being retired and Patricia Carmichael is taking over as head of anti-corruption. So, could this be the end of the line? Or will there be a new story arc? And secondly, what will fill the line of duty-shaped hole in my life? After Sunday, at least that one is easily answered. I'm going to go right back to the beginning of the first series and see what clues I missed the first time round. Well, indeed, that certainly caused controversy even among its most ardent fans as to what the ending was thinking of. I think Jed Mercurio probably got it right. He tied up a lot of loose ends and, yes... It's often the ones that we don't suspect who turn out to be the ones we should have suspected all along. So what are we going to do, as Emily Lee says, to fill that line of duty shaped hole? Well, I can tell you now what's going to take its place. It's called Pursuit of Love. Some people have said it's a cross between Downton Abbey, which everybody knows and loves, and Bridgerton which has been one of the things during the pandemic that a lot of people have looked at on Netflix. Emily Mortimer's adaptation remains true to the spirit of Pursuit of Love, which is a novel by Nancy Mitford. It's her cherished 1945 novel about cousins growing up and finding love during the interwar years. So... This is mostly before we were born, in the 1920s and 30s, or we were very, very young, based on Mitford's own eccentric aristocratic upbringing. Lily James and Emily Beecham star as cousins Linda and Fanny, who, stuck in a large, ugly, north-facing house in Oxfordshire, ferociously ruled over by Uncle Matthew, Dominic West, dream of escape and romance. So maybe that will fill the hole. And that, of course, follows Call the Midwife, which is another very popular programme that we're glad to see back again. So there we are, from line of duty to something historical, which probably verges on the hysterical in places. I must admit, as not having seen any of the line of duty programmes, but I can't resist the Sunday triumvirate of Countryfile, Antiques Roadshow and Call the Midwife. Long way they reign. Right, back with Desney for the last part of the news. Big rise in number of Norfolk children being homeschooled. Norfolk has seen a significant rise in the number of children removed from school to be home educated during the coronavirus pandemic. While most parents have been relieved to send their children back to school after months of remote learning at home, Norfolk County Council said there had been a 33% increase of children registered for home education. 
there are 75,668 children and young people now being home educated across England, according to the first school census day of the 2021 academic year. This represents an increase of more than a third from the year before, with parents citing health concerns relating to COVID as the main reason for keeping their children at home. Between November 2019 and November 2020, the numbers being homeschooled in Norfolk rose from 1,439 to 1,925. It comes amid fears that vulnerable children are falling through the gaps and about the long-term impact on council services. A recent Norfolk County Council report into Children's Services' future finances states there has also been a significant increase in the number of parents electing to home educate, which brings additional duties to the authority. It is too early to know how these trends will continue in the medium term and how they may translate into increased demand in social work teams and potentially for placements in the medium to longer term. These risks will continue to be kept under close review. The Chief Inspector of Schools in England, Amanda Spielman, said while it could be a positive choice for some families, there might be a minority of children who may be at risk out of sight of the authorities. Former local head Jeff Barton, who is now General Secretary of the ASCL Head Teacher Union, said, It is worrying to see such a large increase in the number of pupils no longer on the roll, and particularly that vulnerable children could be among them. A Norfolk County Council spokesperson said, Our services to home educators, SHE, work closely with families to support them in transitioning to home education and providing support and advice. The SHE team also works alongside any other local authority welfare and support and care professionals to ensure a joined-up approach for families. For parents who choose to educate their children at home, continued support will always be provided to help make home education a success. Police break up house party with 28 people crammed into a flat. Police broke up a bank holiday weekend party where 28 people ignored Covid rules to squeeze into a flat in Great Yarmouth. Police were called to an address in Northgate Street following reports of the party on Saturday the 1st of May. Officers arrived to find 28 people inside a flat and the resident was given an £800 fine. Meanwhile, police praised the public overall for their continued cooperation as the first bank holiday weekend with eased lockdown restrictions passed relatively peacefully. Pubs, bars and restaurants offering outdoor services have been open since the 12th of April, when step two of the government's roadmap out of lockdown was implemented. 
Additional police resources were in place for the bank holiday weekend, which typically sees more people out and about and venues busier. Local authorities focused on making sure venues were adhering to the guidelines with routine visits made to business premises supported by officers. Superintendent Nathan Clark said, We've seen good levels of compliance this weekend with the public and venues taking their responsibilities seriously, which we thank them for. Bank holidays tend to be busier than normal. Weekends and businesses that did open were busy with numbers tapering in the evening. While the weather probably paid a part in this, it was encouraging to see that the majority of people were continuing to stick to the guidelines and play it safe. Meanwhile, Norwich City Football Club's championship title win also passed off peacefully, with a number of fans going to Carrow Road on Saturday the 1st of May to celebrate with no issues reported. The next step of the roadmap out of lockdown takes place on Monday, May the 17th. Stage 3's changes to regulations include being able to go indoors either in someone else's residence or an entertainment venue. The rule of six or two households will apply. Pubs will not have to serve substantial meals with alcohol and there will be no curfew in place. Up to 30 people can also attend funerals, wakes and weddings. Social distancing will still be observed, but it will be reviewed before June the 21st. We're so near now, let's hope people carry on behaving themselves. Full steam ahead. Shot putter not giving up on Olympic dream. A Norfolk shot putter is not giving up on her Olympic dream as a surge in coronavirus cases in Tokyo again threatens the Games. Sophie McKinna, 26, from Bradwell, is currently in training for next month's trial that will select members of the British team that will travel to Japan. The country is currently in the grip of a fourth wave of infections and a state of emergency has been declared in Tokyo leading to some doubt as to whether the Olympics will be postponed again or cancelled outright. Despite the situation, Japanese officials maintain they are confident the Games, only 11 weeks away now, can go ahead. Ms McKinna said, I do think of the risks, but I've worked for this for the best part of my life. You're constantly looking at updates, but we have to train as if it's going ahead. Whatever will be, will be, because I can't control whether the Olympics go ahead. For me, it's just going ahead with my day-to-day -day training normally. I just put the, are they, aren't they, to the back of my mind. I would be training regardless of whether or not the Olympics go ahead, she added. In 2019, at the World Championships in Doha, she threw over 18 metres 50, which means she can qualify for the Games. Membership of the British team now depends on finishing in the top two at the Olympic trials on June the 27th. I'm 50% of the way there, she said. Training is full steam ahead at the moment. 
Prospects were not so bright in March after Miss McKinna suffered from a broken elbow before the European Indoor Championships. I was really disappointed after the European Indoor Championships, but I'm back to full training now, which is a big relief because at one stage there was talk of surgery, she said. Last summer, she injured the ligaments in her ankle, which meant that even if the Olympics had gone ahead, she would not have been at her best. This year, I'm much fitter, much more prepared to throw well, she said. Her journey to the Olympics, only a hair's breadth away now, has been a long one. I sat on my mum's lap when I was three years old and said that I was going to be an Olympian, said Miss McKenna. It's been a long way down the line, 20 plus years, and I am almost going to achieve that now. It's mind-blowing when you think of it. Well, good luck. Let's hope for her sake that uh, some form of Olympics is going to go ahead. Three farms hit by thefts of valuable tractor GPS systems. Farmers were urged to beef up security measures after valuable satellite guidance systems were stolen from tractors at three Norfolk farms in two nights. Norfolk police said crimes were reported at farms in Martham and Flegborough and at East Ruston near Stalham. A GPS receiver dome and computer screens were taken from a crop sprayer and tractor in Martham near Great Yarmouth between 6pm on April the 28th and 7am on April the 29th. Meanwhile, at around the same time, computer screens were taken from two tractors at a farm in nearby Flegborough. The following night, thieves broke into four tractors on a farm in East Ruston, near Stalham, between 6pm on April the 29th and 6.15pm on April the 30th, and stole three satellite screens and receivers. The spate of crimes has prompted warnings of a new wave of tech thefts following the spate of crimes last summer, which forced some Norfolk farms to delay their harvest after GPS units were stolen from combine harvesters. Patrick Verrill, a Norfolk agent for rural insurer NFU Mutual, said, These criminals are well organised and know what they're looking for, so it's essential that farmers remove GPS kits when possible, when it's not in use, and store it securely. It's also well worth beefing up security in farmyards, machinery sheds and on tractors to make it harder for thieves to operate. Farming satellite systems can cost between £8,000 and £14,000. But the loss of this equipment can also cause significant disruption to farm businesses, said John Newton, Norfolk County Advisor for the National Farmers Union, NFU. This new wave of GPS thefts is very concerning, he said. We're urging farmers to protect their GPS equipment and take whatever steps they can to make it difficult for thieves to gain access. PC Chris Shelley, Rural Crime Officer for Norfolk Police, said farmers should remain vigilant, report any information to police and mark their addresses or postcodes on their tools and equipment to aid their recovery if stolen. If your items are marked with a serial number, 
know your serial number. And if you can possibly avoid it, please try not to leave valuable items in or on machinery. Tributes to High Street Mechanic, known as Local Legend. A local legend from Hopton has died after a battle with pancreatic cancer. Howard Shepherdson, known to many as Shep of Station Road, Hopton-on-Sea, died aged 59 on Friday, April the 16th. Mr Shepherdson was a well-known businessman owning the Save and Drive on Galston High Street for 26 years. He was also a former parish councillor for Hopton-on-Sea, much-loved prankster and a loving husband, brother, father and grandfather. Howard was a joker, that's for sure, said Sharon Shepherdson, his widow. Mr Shepherdson's twin sister, Elizabeth Horsley, said, you couldn't go anywhere with him where he didn't know someone. Wherever he went, from Yarmouth to Norwich to Dubai, he knew someone. Mr Shepherdson was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in November 2019. He always had so much control before. When we were told it was incurable, he was beside himself. Howard always looked outside the box and after a lot of research, he came across the nano knife procedure in Florida. The Shepherdson family started a GoFundMe campaign for Howard to have the private treatment in America. Mr and Mrs Shepherdson were able to go after the campaign raised over £20,000. While there, Mr and Mrs Shepherdson suffered a few setbacks, including both contracting COVID-19, and Mr Shepherdson was discovered to have had a blood clot. He was operated on in November last year, and he and Mrs Shepherdson returned home in time for Christmas. We had a very good Christmas. He was tired. He kept saying he felt knackered, but he was in good spirits spending time with his grandchildren, Mrs Shepherdson said. The family man felt fit enough to begin DIY projects around the house at the start of this year, but quickly began to feel unwell. Howard's feet and stomach began to swell, Mrs Shepherdson continued. The fluid was biopsied and it was discovered that the cancer cells were in the fluid. Howard was rife with it. The Shepherdson family were told of the diagnosis on Tuesday, April the 13th, and Mr Shepherdson passed away at home on Friday, April the 16th. The family would like to say a big thank you to everyone who made donations for Howard's treatment last year. The Shepherdson family would also like to say thanks to the James Paget University Hospital, especially staff on the ambulatory bay and Ward 3, and his consultant on that ward. The East Coast Community Nurses and the Palliative Care Nurses were fantastic, Mrs Shepherdson said. Well, that's it from this edition of Grapevine. 
The recording is copyright 2021 of the Great Yarmouth and District Talking Newspaper Association. The news content is adapted mainly from the publications of Archant Limited and is used with their consent. However, the Great Yarmouth and District Talking Newspaper Association accept responsibility for editorial decisions made for this recording. Next week's newsreader will be Andrew, and we hope that we can look forward to welcoming you once again for much more of your local news. In the meantime, from all at Grapevine, we hope that you stay safe and well, and until next week, it's bye for now.